welcome to another All Saints Conversation. I'm Connie Willems, and with me today is Brock Bingaman. We have a great topic to talk about today, and it's under the big term of watchfulness. When I say watchfulness, just tell us what you mean by that. It is not Orwell 1984, Big Brother. (laughs) It's a different kind of watchfulness. It is watching over your heart, watching over what happens internally, watching over your mind, your thought life. Why is this important to you? So why, I know as we were talking about what we wanted to talk about, this idea surfaced. Where did it come from? It comes from Scripture. So Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 10.5 about taking every thought captive. Very interesting word picture that he gives there. So Paul is introducing this idea, and oftentimes he's drawing from Greco-Roman culture. So he has in his mind a city wall. And so you're guarding over your heart much like you would guard a city wall, an entrance into that city. Now, I can't help notice that as you're talking, you're talking about you're talking about guarding our thoughts, but then you're also talking about things of the heart. Are you blending the idea of heart and thoughts, or is it two separate things? Another good Western, <laughs> Eastern distinction here. Um, it's both. I think we oftentimes, are we talking about the heart or the mind or the soul or these different things? It's the inner life. Okay. So sometimes the mind is mentioned, sometimes the soul, sometimes the heart. These are the immaterial parts of ourselves. So I think the language is used interchangeably at times. So that's what we're talking about, watchfulness over your inner life. And that's this blend of what's going on in my mind and my heart and things that are coursing back and forth Yes, between the two. That's right. And sometimes we like to say, well, in the mind, these intellectual things, ideas, and in the heart is the place of affections and all that. That may be helpful to help us understand a little bit, but it's really, it's all deeply interconnected. I would assume that since you said that kind of, as Paul was getting this image from the Greco-Roman world of this city without a wall, did other people then pick up on that image and use that? Yes, yes. I, The place where I've learned much about this is the Desert Fathers. So many of these writers really from the third or fourth century through the ninth century took the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Paul, others in Scripture, and really elaborated on it. And so there's a whole tradition called watchfulness in the Desert Fathers. Okay, so this intrigues me because I'm assuming when you say Desert Fathers, these are people who are actually living in the desert. Yes, that's correct. Yes, most of them at one time or another lived in the desert and either went back into city life or spent long seasons of their lives in the desert. Why was watchfulness so important to them? That is a great question. I think many of them lived crazy lives in the city, and they were converted to Jesus. And so the city represented their past lives. Many of them had multiple lovers. They were drunk much of the time. They had party lifestyles. (laughs) And so when they encountered Jesus... They began to read their Bibles or hear stories about people who were pursuing God. It involved the desert. And so some of them would leave the city, sometimes for a season, sometimes for their entire lives, to go and seek God in the desert. When you're alone, 
you encounter what's going on in the inside. So what was in their mind and heart from their previous lives, their experiences would emerge to the surface. And so they had to deal with that. They wanted purity of heart. They wanted to walk with Jesus. They wanted to know God. And yet they had all of this going on inside of them. You're reminding me of a time, oh, I don't know how many years ago, where people were looking at me and I was overworked and stressed at the point. And um, they said, Connie, you just need to go on vacation. You need a vacation. You need mm. to get away from it all. And I can remember thinking, if I go on vacation, I go with me. Mm. So there is That's no true. getting away from it all. I need a That's vacation right. from me. Yeah. And what I was saying is my insides go with me. That's right. And so if I get away from here and go sit on a beach or something, all of the stress is still collected in me and it's going with me. So that's what they found in the desert then. You cannot escape <laughs> yourself. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. So if that's the case, then this becomes really important. What's fascinating though, you can read this whole tradition of watchfulness and many times references are made to people back in the city. So you'll have a desert father who's devoted, let's say 20 years to seeking God and watching over his or her mind or heart. And then they reference people they know back in the city who are doing the same thing that they are, but they're doing it actively. So it's interesting to read. St. Anthony of the Desert, who's writing in the 4th century, actually people are writing about him, references a doctor that he knows of back in the city who's walking in the kind of intimacy with God, the kind of holiness that he is, and yet he's got kids, and he's a physician taking care of people. Fascinating. So it's not limited to, okay, you have to get off to the wilderness, and then all this stuff surfaces, and then in that place of stillness and silence, you have to do this watchfulness. There's this thing that happens in the middle of daily life. Correct, correct. You know, I think it's interesting. I We have this kind of thing going on where we, our personal lives, are in these two different places. Because I live alone, and so I have a lot of control over my space and my schedule and what comes up. So you would think it's really easy for me mm. to kind of control what comes in and what I think about. Not so much. So You're I'm having human. that desert experience. <laughs> yes. But you have a house where you have kids and people in and out all the time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's nuts. So it really it, the notion of watchfulness and staying on top of what's happening in your mind and your heart, it's a challenge for anyone, no matter what. And you're right. So if you think that you can just go flee somewhere and it's going to be quiet and peaceful, you go with you. <laughs> so the beautiful thing about this too is we're talking about Paul and we're talking about who spent time in the desert and Jesus spent time in the desert and many early Christians did. But in a sense, we can carry the desert within ourselves. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, I think I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> um, having gone through a long seven-year spiritual desert myself, I'm trying to unpack exactly what that means. But I, I think there is a place that we can go to regularly within barrenness and all and learn to not despise it but embrace it. And so that would include the good stuff within, the bad stuff, the struggle, the internal struggle. And so the desert really is within ourselves. Now that's interesting. It sounds like we're using desert in a couple different ways here. Mm -hmm. One of them is this 
place of stillness and being away from the hustle and bustle of a city life. And the other is this place of dryness or emptiness. And I'm sure those desert fathers and mothers experience both sides of the desert. That's right. The physical and the spiritual. The little bit that I know, again, these are masters, people who went there spiritually and physically. There's always more to learn. But if you take inner exploration and you begin to go into your heart, into your mind, you'll find the desert there. There is barrenness. There's sin and it's, it's frightening what you encounter. It's beautiful and glorious at the same time, but it can be pretty overwhelming. Spending time alone for some people is, uh, some people would say impossible. I can't do it. I'm terrified. I'm terrified by the thoughts or the memories or what would come up within me. So I I think there's uh, much healing that takes place in the desert as well. I think it takes a lot of courage to Mm. go there into that place of stillness. I meet with a lot of people kind of on in my life coaching side where I'll encourage them mm. to take some space and I can kind of see their eyes get really wide mm. because there is this risk almost of letting everything outside go quiet. And often because our lives are so noisy and there's so much coming at us and by noise I mean visual noise and screen noise and actual noise. But there's so much coming at us that we're not even sure what's inside. So we're not sure what is going to come up if we let something happen. So I would assume that part of watchfulness then is even just the courage to step into that place and pay attention to it. That's right. It requires a lot of courage. I mean, and again, what we're talking about is kind of counterintuitive to culture. We're busy, we're frantic, we're constantly doing things. So the notion of silence, watchfulness is connected to silence and it's connected to listening and it's connected to a number of things. I'd like to uh, read a couple of pieces from one of the great watchful desert fathers, if I can. Could I read a couple of things? Again, keeping in mind what many of these early Christians did was meditate on scripture. So that's really how they maintained watchfulness. And I think we can talk about that in another podcast, but they would meditate on scripture and come across passages like what Paul's saying in second Corinthians 10, five, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus. And so St. Hesychius, the priest is writing, we don't know whether it was the eighth or ninth century. He's one of the desert dwellers, but he says, watchfulness is a continual fixing and halting of thought at the entrance to the heart. Watchfulness is a continual fixing and halting of thought at the entrance to the heart. It's like I'm just picturing city walls and there's a gate and it's kind of Remember, did you, you probably saw the Lord of the Rings movie, right? Yeah, but not <laughs> <Okay>. like you did. <laughs> so I'm picturing Gandalf on that bridge, and he has the, the big, um, what was it, his staff, and he said, you shall not pass. Yeah. And it's like looking at a thought coming towards you and saying, you shall not pass. That's right. And doing this on a consistent basis. Wow. 
So that's what these folks learned was that if you're not doing that, you're toast. So it's an invitation. It requires courage. It requires serious discipline. So the idea of guarding what goes on and really, in a sense, frisking every thought that's coming from without or within. So you're saying, is this line up with the character of Jesus? Does this engender love for Jesus, love for other people, love for myself? And so you're frisking every thought at the entrance to the gate of your heart. Okay, now you got to know that that just sounds impossible listening yeah. to it. Yes. Do you think these guys actually managed, these desert fathers and mothers managed this after years of practice? The beauty of it is the humility in all of them. Mm. Every single one, even if they devoted 50 years to watching over the inner life and communion with God, which is the secret, it's not gritting your teeth and being watchful, it's actually being distracted by someone else, mm -hmm. and that's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's gazing upon the face of Jesus within yourself. So that's the secret. It's not gritting your teeth and saying, I've got to be watchful. I've got to guard my thoughts. It's actually being entranced by someone else. And that's then the reason that you're doing it too, is to create capacity for this other thing that's much better than whatever would happen to your thoughts left to themselves. That's right. And they're interconnected. So the way that you're watchful is by turning to the Lord, turning inwardly. St. Hesychius talks about the secret, and again, we can talk about this, the Jesus prayer. Mm -hmm. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And so he's invoking the name of Jesus, turning to Jesus, and Jesus helps him be watchful. So rather than thinking about old memories, past wounds, whatever it is he's dealing with, he is, through intimate conversation and friendship, communion with Jesus, finding himself in watchfulness. So continual prayer. And again, this is something we don't learn in a week yeah. or a month or a year for that matter. This is a, an arduous task, but it's worth it. I'm actually, I'm remembering the verse in Proverbs as we're talking that mm. says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man or woman who lacks self-control. Mm. And I've never thought about this idea of not just self-control as far as my action, but self-control as far as my thoughts. Every thought. But if the Holy Spirit indwells me and one of his fruits is self-control, why wouldn't he begin to say, look, we're going we're gonna to look and shape the shape of your inner life, mm -hmm. and that's part of that is self-control. Self just saying to your mind, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. Easier said than done. Yeah. The, Jesus did this. So if you read the temptation, I love it. We get a very human picture of Jesus. He was fully human, right? He was fully divine, but he is having to be watchful. So these very crafty temptations that are coming his way, and so he's watchful, and he's in the desert, and he's being tempted in these various ways. And his rebuttal, his counter-speaking, his counter-attack is scripture. But nonetheless, he's aware of how these things are coming to him. We're not sure how that exactly happened. But Jesus himself was watchful and prayerful and counter-speaking, counter-attacking with promises from scripture. Earlier you said that if we don't do this, we're toast. We're toast. What happens? What's the toast look like? Well, I think... 
all the various things you mentioned that come up from within ourselves, we're kind of victim to that. And again, that can be anxiety, can be negative things other people have said, it could be lust, it could be pride, comparison, self-loathing. I mean, you can go on and on. And if we don't have other thoughts, other meditations going on, then those things will eat us alive, like termites inside. There's a, a phrase that I heard someone say, and I think this was a theologian from the 19th century. He talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. Ooh, say that again. The expulsive power of a new affection. And so you've got to have some other internal motion, some other affection that's going on, some other internal activity to drive out these other toxic things. If you can learn those new thoughts and internal motions through prayer and meditation on Scripture, then it will expel the others. You know, we've all experienced that, though. I'm thinking about when... I might be in a place of discouragement or stress or anxiety and something really good happens mm. and it's just, it's an expulsive power. It's like I can't be in this new and interesting and adventurous place and hang on to the discouragement at the same time. It expels it. It expels it. So if we could develop a regular pattern of how to do this, how to be watchful, number one, and even be concerned about it and focused on it, and then have very specific methods and approaches of expelling these things. That's precisely. Um, Hesychius also says, I'm reading from the Philokalia, a collection of desert spirituality. This is the first volume. You can buy this on Amazon, by the way. Hesychius says, watchfulness is a spiritual method which if practiced over a long period of time, completely frees us with God's help from negative thoughts, negative words, and evil actions. And then he goes on to spell this out in great detail. He says, it frees us from these thoughts. It gives us insight and revelation into Scripture. It helps us obey God and receive God's blessing. It gives us purity of heart so that we can see and gaze upon God. And then he says it leads to spiritual growth and virtue. So obviously, he's convinced that watchfulness leads to many, many wonderful things. And it sounds like it's a foundation or maybe a doorway that gets you started on that. So you've been reading these guys for a while. How did that affect you? What did you start doing as a result? Well, I found myself in an internal desert, a spiritual desert within, and someone suggested that I start reading some of these folks. And so that's how it happened, through friendship and conversation with others. And I just, I'm almost speechless. I don't even know really what, how to respond to that other than these folks, in a sense, saved my spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And did you begin to become more watchful in some way? Yes. What at happened? times. At, at times, times I did. Yeah. At times I was so troubled by what was going on in my own heart and the pain of the season. Maybe we can talk about that at another time. But definitely an introduction to a new level of watchfulness and a desire to be watchful. Okay, so if I could take you back to, what is that, seven, eight years ago maybe, and I don't know if you can remember this on the fly or not, so we'll, we'll see. We'll try. We'll try. Um, 
but can you remember a time when like a just a beginning step of watchfulness began to kick in and what you started doing to actually put that into action? Yeah. There's something going on with my wife's health. And so it was such a difficult thing for the two of us to deal with that it would consume me. I thought about it all the time during the day, during the night. And so I knew I either had to be watchful or I couldn't sleep. It was mm -hmm. just eating me alive. So it really in desperation, Amanda and I both had to <laughs> become watchful out of desperation because if these things pain things out of your control, these kinds of things will, it will suffocate you. Mm. So we, I really turned to these people because I needed help. It was therapy. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. A sense of guarding. You know, I'm not talking about this in a theoretical or academic way. Yeah. I'm talking about this out of survival. And I was clinging to these people in their writings and they became mentors so it almost feels like it was there's going to either you're going to drown or there's a lifeline that gets thrown to you. That's right. And the lifeline said you cannot stay in the storm mm -hmm. 24 hours a day or you'll go under. You'll go under. So you have to be watchful. Mm -hmm. So you kind of come out of the storm into a little bit of a harbor mm -hmm. now and then. Yes. Is that? That's right. And I mean, think about how applicable this is to all of us. You know, whether it's a pain that I'm speaking of or someone who's an addict, they're a drug addict or they're addicted to pornography or they're addicted to their own self-loathing or they were molested as a child. And so they're constantly revisiting these things. So watchfulness suddenly becomes something helpful for all of us. Yeah. If you're human, you're a meditating creature. And so the question is, what are you meditating on? Are you meditating on these other toxic things? Or can you learn to turn your inner attention somewhere else and learn to meditate on something that's life-giving? That seems so key that I'm going to repeat that, that if yeah. we're human, we are meditating creatures. So what are we going to meditate on? Mm -hmm. And I know it's possible in the midst of deep pain and suffering, it's nearly impossible to turn your mind from that. But I've also seen that in the middle of fairly normal life, we can get eaten up with this internal just cycle of thoughts that will not go away. Mm -hmm. And it might simply be rehearsing a to-do list. Mm -hmm. I know people that the instant they wake up in the morning, the first thing their thoughts begin to do is rehearse the to-do list <laughs> for the day. And it just, from there, it never calms down. Yeah. You and called it, it a gerbil wheel. Right? It's the like being wheel. on a mental hamster wheel. Yes. Your brain just hops right under the hamster wheel and it just chugs away mm -hmm. all day. That's right. And you have to kind of knock your brain off the hamster wheel. Mm -hmm. And I mean, seriously, it's like you got to elbow the thing to get it off the hamster wheel because on its own, it won't. Mm -hmm. And my version of that is waking up at three in the morning. And if I let myself get too far awake, my brain will climb on the hamster wheel with whatever it has going on at the moment and just start churning away. Honestly, nothing good happens mentally for me at 3 o'clock in the morning. Nothing positive. Right, right. Nothing. There's no wellness that comes in. There's no life. There's no joy. Mm -hmm. So 
I need those things in the middle of the night to knock my brain off that hamster wheel. And it's a form of watchfulness. And whether it's 3 a.m. or 3 p.m., that wheel is inviting you. Come and mull this over. And so, in a sense, watchfulness, kind of the inner life methods, practices, prayers, these kinds of things are alternatives. And they're life-giving. So just tell me one or two of them that you have done over the years. I remember reading this person, St. Hesychius, and as he's talking about watchfulness, he talks about the Jesus prayer, which I quoted a minute ago, and he talks about silence and stillness, and he interweaves all of these. And he says, really, they all feed and strengthen one another. So the biggest one for me during this desert season and to this day has been praying the Jesus prayer. Because it's 10 words, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And anyone can pray that. Anywhere, anytime. And you just have that praying in the back of your mind. That is right. Rather than going on the wheel Mm -hmm. or digging a ditch and going in there and I go to the Jesus prayer. It's an alternative. And, you know thousands, millions of people have used this prayer. It's a biblical prayer. It comes out of the Gospels. They would, Jesus would come to town to heal, and people would cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. So it comes out of various prayers like that. And some people might say, well, that's rote. The Jesus prayer, doesn't it get old? It doesn't. You're calling on Jesus. You're calling on the mightiest name in the universe. And so it doesn't get old. I would say that compared to the level of practice you have with the Jesus Prayer, I have a minimal level. But what I have found is, how would I describe it? It's, it is a meditation. There is something about inviting my brain and my mind and my inner, the eyes of my heart to turn to Jesus that um, it shifts where my focus is. And so it begins to do something inside a very simple way. You're calling out to Jesus. And some people might say, well, you're leaving out the Father and the Spirit. No, you're not, because Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. There is no Son without the Father. And there's no Lordship without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So it's a Trinitarian prayer. And there are ways to bring in the Father and the Spirit as well. So it connects you to the triune God. So again, I can't think of a better practice. I can't think of a better person to turn to. And what you read in the Philokalia here is that at some point, you actually become the prayer. So you're not just praying it. Something transitions, and it becomes an internal motion. And these people prayed it so often that even while they were sleeping, their heart was praying. Kept praying. Which to me would sound a little bit, okay, that's bizarre. Unless I think about the very practical things where my mind actually does that anyway. I This right. week I pulled out James Taylor music again, so I've been listening to James Taylor, and I woke up with going to Carolina in my mind. There's this inner thing that was happening in me that was meditating on James Taylor music, apparently, overnight. Yeah. So why not be meditating with something like the Jesus Prayer instead? If my If I'm going to do it, 
why not choose to do it with something other than James Taylor? And we're wired like yeah. this. I mean, we yeah. our minds are limitless. It's unbelievable. Music, movies, images, poetry. So what's beautiful is you can take the Jesus prayer into those things. So it's really not a sterile environment you're creating within so that I've, I'm praying the Jesus prayer and I'm pushing all these things out and I want this vacuum. That's not it at all. The Jesus prayer goes with you into anything. So you can be in a movie praying the Jesus prayer. It's a way to commune with Jesus. Some people will say, well, this is just idealistic. It's not. But when Paul says pray without ceasing, that's not a command. It's a promise. So for Paul to be able to say that to the Thessalonian church, he's not saying you must pray, pray continually. He's saying there is a place in God. There is a place in grace that you can pray continually. And you can go there. You. There is this invitation to enter into this place of prayer that is not ceasing, and you can come there. So That's it's not right. this burden. It's this invitation. We could go on and on and on, I'm sure, yes. but we are out of time for today. I'm sure we'll get to talk more about this in the future. I'd like to uh, just pray this, and if you're listening, I would encourage you to experiment. Try praying the Jesus Prayer. Try it for a few days. Try it for a week. Try it the month of February. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, and see if that doesn't help you with some of this inner watchfulness and things that we're talking about. Thanks for listening. Experiment. Yeah. So thanks for joining us for this All Saints conversation. If you would like to learn more, you can check us out on the Internet. Our website is olcc.org slash allsaints.